Welcome to Story Conversations. I'm Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Hi, Susan. Hello, Simon. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm feeling musical today, as our guest is a musical guest. Why don't yes. you tell our listeners a little bit more about who it is? Terrific. I will do that. So our guest today is Steve McCrary, who is the general manager of a very unique um, guitar, a stringed instrument manufacturer mm-hmm. called Collings Guitars. Um, and they they are in the um, you know the Valhalla of mm-hmm. <laughs> instrument manufacturers that, that include all the names that are real household names like Fender and Taylor. Um, but they have a very very unique value proposition. They're small. They're based in in Austin, Texas, um, and they've they've managed to carve out a niche. Hmm. in part because their charismatic founder really had an extraordinary brand story yeah. that 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 he lived out. So anyway, without further ado, let's have a chat with Steve. Let's. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on Story Conversations. So you're the general manager of one of the most revered companies in a very specialized niche you're the manufacturers of superior hand-built acoustic and electric guitars and mandolins collings guitars um, you're technically luther luthiers 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 is how you say it, isn't it you're makers of stringed instruments um and you've got a very unique brand story you know founded by bill collings the company's a brand promise of unflinching commitment to quality your attention to design detail its the result of, you know, these, I mean, when we get to it later and we find out who's using these instruments, it's sort of like, it's the A, double day, triple A list people. Um, you know, founder-led companies tend to have these remarkable origin stories. Can you tell us a bit about Bill Collings and Collings Guitar and how it came to be? Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to, and thanks for having me here today. Um, I've you know, talking to Bill, I met Bill when he moved uh, to Austin from Houston in 1979 or 1980 and, and didn't know a lot about him at that point. But since then, I've been able to kind of go back and look at some of the history. And I've discovered, and this, some of this was from Bill and some of it was from Bill's friends and Bill's family. But Bill's father was a chemical engineer with Dow Chemical. And Bill's grandfather from the 40s to the 60s was a, a general manager and a vice president of Dow. Uh, chemical, and when they combine with Corning Glass, become Dow Corning. Bill's grandfather became the president. He has 69 patents through Dow. I've got a book somewhere here called Dow's Pioneering Leader, William Collings. Um, so a very smart individual. Um, that grandfather's uncle was a Scottish immigrant, 1800s, came over, was building bicycles, repairing bicycles. Um, got tired of repairing bicycles, wanted to get married and realized that wasn't enough money. So he became uh, a bicycle builder. Uh, his name is Alexander Winton, by the way, and you can look him up. It's a fascinating story. So he built bicycles. He raced bicycles. He would do 100-mile bicycle races to kind of show off his, his wares. He built a motorcycle and then wanted to be able to seat more than one person on a, this automotive device. So he started working with, on cars. He is, um, and I've read stuff from the Historical Society in Cleveland and the newspapers and stuff, credited being the first person to build and sell a car, a car commercially in the United States, which is one of the men who put America on wheels. Uh, that car was in the Smithsonian, and now it's in an auto and aviation uh, museum, I think, somewhere in Ohio. Um, interesting story about that. And he went on to design marine diesel engines for boats and stuff. He was, you know, a very sharp, sharp guy. What was the name of that company that he founded? The Win- it was the Winton Motor Carriage Works. And he used to um, race against Henry Ford. He would race his own race. He built, he built little touring cars and he built these race cars, Bullet 1 and Bullet 2. And he would drive them. He and Henry Ford, I have a photograph of some of those guys racing each other. 
they kind of started the Daytona Raceway from racing on the beaches. It was flat sand, you know, there was not many paved roads. Um, and even more interesting is in, in uh, 2003, Ken Burns did a documentary called Horatio's Ride, America's First Road Trip. It was a young doctor, 31 years old, Horatio Jackson, I think, was in a gentleman's club in San Francisco and he made a bet, they were talking about the horse versus the automobile being, you know, which is inferior or superior. He made a bet that he could make it from San Francisco to New York in uh, less than 90 days. Well, the bet was taken. He, he was like early 30s, he brought a young man, 22 year old young man, helper along, and he bought a bulldog on the way and the bulldog wore goggles the whole, I think it took him, you know, 5,000 miles to so make a 3,000 mile trip. Um, but you can see that uh, it's worth watching that documentary. Tom Hanks does the voiceover for Horatio's Drive. It's just fascinating. And that and that first transcontinental trip was in a Winton automobile. So Bill had this ability, just this technical ability, uh, just genetically. Uh, all that stuff kind of came into Bill. What was fascinating about Bill too, though, was that his um, artistic sensibility also equaled that mechanical, that intuitive mechanical ability and, and uh, engineering ability that Bill was born with. And he started that, you know, at an early age. He um, was living, you know, as a teenager in, in Ohio and tried a couple of semesters at uh, Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, realized that dentist, he didn't really want to be a dentist. He was starting on a pre-med program to be a dentist and made it maybe one semester, maybe two. I don't think he even made it two semesters. He drove, he drove to a place uh, in Athens that's still a luthier supply house. They sell parts and woods and all kinds of stuff for building guitars and bought a banjo kit, took it back to the machine shop he was working at in Cleveland and started putting that banjo kit together. He also built his first guitar up there in Cleveland. And then due to the weather or whatever, he decided to move down to Texas, so he moved to Houston. In Houston, he had a second floor apartment building with a table saw, hand tools, his motorcycle he would push upstairs into the <laughs> second floor apartment. He started going to the clubs, um, meeting players, uh, you know, repairing guitars, which is how he learned a lot about building guitars, and which a lot of guys have done. They've started out repairing and then go into building. Um, that's where he met Lyle Lovett, who was a journalism student at Texas A&M University, not far from Houston. Lyle met him because he'd heard about this guitar builder that was building guitars for these musicians in Houston. And that has started a you know many decades long relationship with Lyle. Um, so it kind of got started there in Houston. Bill built a number of guitars there. Decided to head to California, uh, made it as far as Austin, and never left. <laughs> in about 1980 when he got to Austin. So that was kind of where it all started. He, he had a few shops. He shared some shops, um, shared shop with a, a gentleman uh, who now builds mandolins. He shared a shop with a guy named Michael Stevens who went on to run the Fender Custom Shop um, and then built, had his own little shop in a garage, one car garage, and then hired his first employee in 1989. That's really when things got started, when he started hiring a few people. And was there a breakthrough? Was there some, you know, big order of, or? And, and I think it also was in 1989, um, there's a guitar legend in the country named George Grun. He has a store in Nashville. He'd been in guitar design. He still does lots of appraisals. He still helps in guitar design. Um, George Grun ordered 24 guitars with his name, Grun, on the headstock and not Collings. Uh, and that's really kind of helped get Bill some national attention. Uh, he was doing guitar shows. Um, people, it's where he first met Chris Martin of Martin Guitars, you know, at a guitar show in Dallas or somewhere. And, and Bill just started through, through the Gruen connection. It kind of got him on the national stage. And then he just took off. Uh, and for all the things you mentioned, the, the detail, the design work, the craftsmanship, that kind of put him on a path. I mean, you know, the, the term artisanal is thrown around a lot these days, you know, but I think 
when I think about Collings guitar and your brand story, I mean, the, the idea that these instruments are all hand built at a point in time where, you know, we are seeing so much that's being automated. Um, but I'd, I'd love to probe around the idea of, you know, you are differentiated from other guitar and mandolin manufacturers that our audience might know about. You, know, you mentioned Taylor, you men you've mentioned Fender. Practically speaking, how, how are you different? What's, what's a comparison? You know, let's talk a little bit well, pragmatically about price, you know. How many instruments yeah. do you manufacture a year? I mean, where do you stand in comparison with these other well-known brands in terms of guitar manufacturers? Well, for example, uh, you mentioned Fender Gibson, both very old you know, American companies make, you know, I can't even imagine how many, I don't know the exact output of Fender or Gibson, um, way more than, than we are. Uh, you know, Martin, as far as the acoustic side, is, you know, almost a 190, 195-year-old company or something. Um, Taylor, which is a, a company about the same age as ours, but on a, a huge company, they build over a thousand guitars a day. They do use automation. They've got some robotics that spray guitars and buff guitars. Um, there are a lot of small companies too, way smaller than us even, you know, one-man shops. Um, even our friend Jim Olson, who's built a lot of guitars for James Taylor, bought a CNC machine so he could do repetitive, like, you know, after a couple of shoulder surgeries, he, he bought a CNC machine to carve necks instead of doing this, you know, wearing out his, his joints and his, and his shoulders. So there's a whole range of stuff. And a lot of us do kind of, there's similar tasks involved, whether it's a huge company like Fender or Gibson or a small company like us, or even smaller yet, the guys that are, you know, four or five or 12 men shops. But we've been able to, what, what's interesting about what we've done is that it's, it's a production style. And what Bill did was he wanted to have guitars that were built one man at a bench, but in a production type environment. And that's really something no one else has done. There's like, there's smaller companies that focus on one guitar at a time as we do too, but they're, but they're not doing quite as many guitars as we are. And again, we're, you know, Taylor's a thousand guitars a day and we're, uh, you know, eight, nine on a good day, <laughs> instruments, electrics and acoustics combined. Um, so small, uh, the difference, one of the main differences between us and larger companies is we spend way more time on each individual guitar. Um, Cause that's what we're, that's what we're about. There was a, when Bill passed, I got an email from a gentleman in Canada who had never met Bill, but he said he took a, a, a sucker punch to his psyche, not even, realizing you know why but the more he thought about it and there's an amazing letter i actually read it at bill's memorial service that we had lost something you know someone that had put so much care and thought into um creating something in america and in his case he said i love guitars they're alive i treat them like they're alive and why wouldn't i they everyone inspires me just because it's you know someone that cared that did this so we just have been able to put a lot of attention on each instrument um, with the craftsmen we have here and the stuff we learned from Bill um, and the way we're going to you know, keep that moving forward. Yeah, you mentioned Bill's memorial service, and I think for the benefit of our audience, we should say that sadly Bill passed away, I think it was in 2017. Correct. Um, and you and a group of other stalwart loyal employees have been keeping the legacy alive um and you know it's definitely um you know that idea of hand built one guy at a bench but there's it's a production and i i had the benefit of the privilege of touring collings guitars a number of weeks ago and um it is astounding to watch these this this group of artisans, this team, if you will, and their commitment to the quality, the the hand built, the the details that are inside the guitar that nobody ever sees. Mm. But that that commitment to quality is 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 um, 
is really extraordinary. He, he, he never knew where to stop. <laughs> you just go as far as you can go and then go a little further. Um, he just wanted to make sure everyone got more than their money's worth. So he would build guitars, like you said, paying attention to the inside. In case anyone ever even looked inside, he wanted people to realize that we paid as much attention on the inside guitars on the outside. And there's not a lot of guitars that will stand up to the same. Uh, you put your glasses on, go in a guitar store and look at a bunch of guitars and you can see the differences in some. Do you think that attention to craft, the detail, is what makes your customers so loyal? Because you've got some pretty exceptional loyal customers who you might be able to mention some of them, might be able to talk about some of them. They're certainly on, on your website. But do you think there's a link between that? Is that what they're looking for? Uh, sure. And there's a, I mean, there's a, lots of great guitars being made. I mean, these companies we've talked about, Fender, Gibson, Martin, Taylor, uh, they make great guitars. Uh, and they have certainly have their fans. And they're much bigger than we are, so they have more fans than we do. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of people that own those guitars, even vintage versions of those guitars from the you know, a 30s, a 30s Martin or a, or a, a 30s or 40s Gibson, uh, a 50s, you know, Fender Stratocaster. Um, but they will also have callings, whether it's for studio work or road work or something. And, you know, you mentioned pricing earlier. I think you can get a custom shop Strat for four or $5,000. Um, custom shop Les Paul from Gibson for maybe five to seven, and these are brand new guitars, or you can get uh, a fully relict model for up to 20 grand. This for a brand new guitar that's made to look like it's uh, a, a very, you know, a vintage guitar. Uh, so every, everyone's pricing, um, and our stuff runs standard models from say five to eight. Um, you can certainly option up either by woods or pickups or color combinations, option up to the, you know, to 10,000 and, and some of the mandolins, the priciest mandolins get to 15, 16,000. We don't build very many of those, but, um, and everyone has kind of the same thing. The cost for everyone's gotten higher, the cost of materials, cost of labor. So price has gone up for everyone over the last few years. And um, supply chain issues, I mean, you know, the whole world's been through the pandemic, uh, including us. So, but it's it's really interesting because, like I said, we all kind of do similar things. All the guitar manufacturers, whether big or small, uh, but it's but people realize that what we stand for, and since we sell through dealers all around the world, and we don't have dealers in every even in every state, so people have learned to trust um, what they're going to get from colleagues when they have to order from the West Coast. They have to order from the East Coast to get a guitar to the West Coast, for example, um, and they trust us. And that's our, that's kind of our job is to, to, to earn that has taken, you know, blood, sweat and years. And then, you know, to keep it going is, is our job. So, um, dazzle our audience a little bit, name drop <laughs> yeah. some of the, some of the loyalists who are not only, they, they don't, they don't have one Collings guitar. They have many in certain cases, but. Well, McCartney told me not to drop names. <laughs> no. I mean, yes, it's fun to see an artist on stage with one of your guitars. It's crazy fun to see Keith Richards at a Rolling Stone show pull out his Collins acoustic. Um, I mean, you know, uh, I've gotten to meet Pete Townsend a few times. He's bought several of our instruments. Um, and again, the larger companies certainly have larger, you know, artist programs and, and, you know, you won't see as many for us as some of the bigger companies, but we've got a pretty nice, nice crew. I mean, the Texas guys, we've got the King, you know, George Strait and Lyle Lovett and Robert Earl Keane and um, we build guitars for, um, you know, I mentioned Pete and Keith, but also the rockers, you know, Neil Sean and Paul Stanley and Tommy Shaw. We built guitars for Joni Mitchell in the 90s. We built guitars for Brandy Carlisle. Paul Simon, Zach Brown, Bill Frizzell, Julian Lodge, these young, you know, young and not as young jazz people. Um, so we were able to cover all the, you know, a lot of the bases and all the genres of music between our acoustics and our electrics. It's been, you know, and the mandolins, you know, we've got, we've got 
you know, feet in the bluegrass world with our instruments and then feet in the jazz world uh, and feet in the rock world. So it's pretty, which is, which being, you know, production style, even though we're small, enables us to do that. Whereas most of the smaller companies just do one, one thing. They just do acoustic guitars, for example. Um, but we've been able to do that. And that whole, you know, the art part of it, and the commerce part of it, talking about pricing and stuff, is a. I mean, Johnny Carson and NBC had feuds for years about art and art and commerce, <laughs> you know. So, and we're, you know, it's we've dealt with the same stuff, art and industry, like in the labels that go inside our guitars. Back in the, you know, early '80s, late '70s, early '80s, Bill had this, this little, it's a little label, a drawing of. Uh, just a little, you know, little creek with a couple of flowers on the banks. Well, now it's this river in, in this valley with big trees on the sides, and there's kind of a smoke belching mill on the upper end of the label, you know, with smells. And down the river comes logs and guitars floating down the river. So he wanted that production, you know, from early on. He wanted to, to see a guitar that was built like a handmade guitar on one bench, but coming out of a production type facility. Um, which is challenging, and there's no one really that does what we do. Mm. I mean, and again, those... much larger production facilities uh, and smaller, but to try to marry those two things is, you know, there's not many people that do what we do. And those um, loyal customers wait often how long from ordering a guitar through to a dealer putting it in their hands? We have, so, you know, we have customers other than the, you know, some of the people we've mentioned. Uh, that have numerous guitars. Of course, they play other stuff as well. Um, we have a lot of people that collect guitars and have you know 20 or 30 or 40 callings in their collections. But since the pandemic and our, our cruise size has been down, so our production is down, and so we had to come up with this allocation system for dealers at every store around the world. And depending on you know how much business you had done, how much business you want to do. Uh, we couldn't figure out a more equitable way to do it than what your history was with us. So if you're a newer company, you unfortunately, don't get as many build slots. If you're a long-term Collins dealer, you've done a lot of business, you get more build slots. So it could take someone six months to get a guitar or two years to get a guitar if they want to work through a certain retailer, certain dealer. You know, well, this is my guy, I want to order through him. If he doesn't have many slots and the ones he has are already sold to somebody, this person has to wait. But we do, you know, we answer phones and emails all day, every day with people looking for something, and we will try to run down what they're looking for. Again, they may have to buy it from across country, um, but we do a lot of that, help people try to find something. And that's just a, simply a, a factor of, you know, staffing and training. Um, Austin's you, got a very expensive place to live, and so, you know, finding people that can work, you know, come to come to work and, and do this, because there's so many kind of, there's so much work here available in town that we're always kind of competing um, with people you know for jobs with people you you mentioned in that letter that you read at bill's memorial service you know about this whole notion of the the, the instrument becomes almost an an animate object and i remember reading somewhere lyle lovett was talking about collings guitars have soul and i actually think i'd have to go back and check this but i actually think lyle lovett said collings guitars have a soul that idea that this is an extension of their artistry but it's 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 part of them it's it's this it's 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 almost a breathing um well thing and and you talk about instruments being voiced or having a voice that's really interesting to me could you explain that to our audience well there is a thing called voicing a guitar um talking about lyle's comment there as far as a guitar is having a soul being a living breathing thing they actually they actually are living breathing things and i'll talk about the that um and, and Lyle personally, because of his relationship with Bill, just felt like there's a little piece of Bill in every guitar, and which there is, and that will always be the case. Um, but it's, um, guitars are very intimate instruments. You don't, 
just sit at a bench and touch them out here. You cradle these things in your lap. You wrap your arms around them as if it's a child or something. You feel it vibrate against your, your body. Guitars work by the, the top vibrating. Okay, you hit the string, it vibrates the top. Sound waves go into the guitar or air, air waves and then bounces off the back of the guitar and comes out through the sound hole. So it's actually breathing like that. Um, and the fact that, for example, a guitar that's built, you know, mass production style may not have quite as much soul as something that someone has individually carved each brace on the guitar, individually, you know, thicknessed and flexed and tapped and hand sanded the top down to the desired um, specs to make that top vibrate the way it's, you know, the best possible way for the instrument, to the guitar it's going on, the body style, the back and side woods. So there's a lot of, of handwork. So voicing is a, t it's, you know, it's a technique. It's making the right decisions and the right techniques of how to get this top to work the best. Like I said, with what it's going on, what the back and sides are, what's the body size of the guitar. Um, you do it by weight, you do it by thicknessing, you do it by the joinery that goes inside the guitar where you, you know, attach the braces and attach. All these details make up the voice of a guitar. And that gentleman from Canada had a, had a thing about what, you know, about Collings and said they have a, a voice of their own, that clarity, the projection, all these things that make up a good guitar. And this guy was just, he realized that you know, with passing a bill that there was something that was going to be gone from um, from his world of guitars, even though we were trying our best to make that not be the case. We're still going to keep doing this. A lot of us have worked here, you know, worked with Bill for 20 plus years. Um, and there are some people that work here that never got to meet Bill. So we try to, um, it, you know, it's not, it's, it's, not as, it's not easy to inspire people like Bill could, <laughs> uh, but we do our best. It's interesting that, you know, that that legacy lives on, that although it was a founder and uh, who crafted it and designed it, there is there is something that can pass on. I, th I mean, I'm not a guitarist. I play keys and I have in, pos in my position in this very room a, a Moog that, you know, that was designed by Bob Moog that's, that's, that comes from that kind of lineage. And it's, it, it's still, it feels like a a breathing instrument because it's made up of real things it's not a, a plastic or manufactured thing and that craft just seeps through the instrument and you feel it like that soul comes from it and i think Absolutely. it comes from the person but i think it's yeah. fascinating that 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 um soul can be passed on through more than one person <laughs> as it were well that's and that's part of i mean we cut and we cut and glue and sand and paint wood i mean yeah. you know that's what we do, and but the way you do that is what gives that that soul and that voice to the instrument, and and Bill was you know just so good at it, and then that's been our journey for these last you know, almost six years since he passed to keep that going, and again a lot of us got to work with him for a long long time, mm. and some of the guys that you know run the shop you know there's myself, our head of HR Ruth Archuleta and our head of engineering Clint Watson are the three kind of co-leaders you know running the company and then of course we have help from you know head of production and all our team leads and you know it's it's it takes a it takes a village to to birth a guitar <laughs> right <laughs> and is you know i think it's important to note um that bill's charisma um this is not saint bill this you know you you the whole team tells stories <laughs> about bill that are uh, you know, almost like the notoriety of someone like Steve Jobs. I mean, he, he was vision, Bill was a visionary and he was, as you said, he, he was, I guess, demanding may not be the right word to use, but he, he was exacting in terms of what he expected. Um, yeah. So, you know, he, he, that founder's passion um, was colorful <laughs> yeah, well, he was a stickler, and he didn't want to settle for anything less than we could, you know, than than we could achieve. Because he knew he could do these things, he could build this guitar, but he wanted other people to be able to do it. And so, by having people, so people, you know, there's X people in production, say 40 people in production. They're not all building 40 different guitars. They're working in certain areas, so the guitar passes through these people, so they become specialists 
the particular area that they they work in. So otherwise, you'd have 40 different guitars coming out, but you know variations, you know, mm. of all kinds. Of, um, so that whole production thing and having people focus on this particular becoming an expert in this area um, was what he wanted to do and is what he was successful at getting across to us. Uh, as far as um, what do you say, colorful? Yeah, I, 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 I said, said colorful. Yes. Everyone has Bill stories, um, and there, you know, he was a, you know, he could be a terminal twelve-year-old. He was a prankster. I seen him wake people up that were sleeping in their truck by grabbing a dirty mop out of the bucket and just thrashing them. You know, they unfortunately, had their windows down when they were sleeping in their car, and he would just <laughs> work them over in their head with with a dirty mop. I've seen him bring a, a dead snake in, climb up in the mezzanine where the AC system is, dangle it down with a fishing rod over to a guy's shoulder who tossed an expensive mandolin. Bill thought it was the funniest thing ever. Um, oh, dear. At a, at a NAM show. So our, our, our trade industry is called NAM, National Association of Music Merchants. And we were at a trade show one year, and Bill took some of those bubba teeth, you know, that look all rotten and broken and... And he had those in his mouth. We were checking out for breakfast one morning, and he put those in. And this is one of the times I've laughed the hardest in my whole life. I had to walk away, and my guts were hurting. And the lady's cashing him out, and he takes a toothpick out of a little thing and starts digging in those bubble <laughs> teeth. And just a straight-faced, and this poor woman, I don't know how she kept it together. I was, I was belly aching, dying. I had to go several feet away and sit down and watch this. Um, but he was just a character. And he liked to do that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he would do things like, oh, this has probably been 10, 12 years ago. We got a call from a professor at the University of Houston, uh, a design professor in the architecture school. And he wanted us to come down and look at their tooling and see if we could help this, this uh, fourth year design class maybe build some guitars, custom guitars. So Bill and Clint went down, uh, realized they had no idea what they were going to do and the tooling was not sufficient at all. So Bill takes on this project of these 13 students designing, I think their assignment was to a, a genre of music or maybe even artist and design a guitar for that type, for a blues guy or something like that. So it took us months at a huge cost to the shop and our engineers and our, you know, and we helped these guys design. Of course, they couldn't do CAD work and do the tool pathing and stuff. For, and built 13 totally unique, one-of-a-kind custom instruments that we, of course, had to help do a lot of the work. Um, so he would also do that. He would he would reach out and help and pull someone along and move forward. And uh, you know, at the same time as being a, a goofball, he was a, <laughs> was a very generous uh, person as far as that kind of thing. Which was it was a hellacious project. Um, at the end, we had a party at the school down in Houston and had brought in a, you know, bands and played, and they all got the, the instruments got played by professional musicians and stuff. Nice. But he, he would go both ways. He would be, like I said, he would drop a dead snake on someone's shoulder, or he would, <laughs> um, you know, take this class of 13 people who had no idea what they were doing and help them build these things they'll have for their lifetime and never forget that experience. Well, speaking of these different guitars, you've also got a different guitar brand is that right you've got waterloo guitar that waterloo guitar line and that's it was launched as a whole new brand what's what's the origin story of that and and the you know this the why the separate brand well years ago he kept talking about wanting to build a kind of a folk guitar and it took him a year or so to kind of get his head around it and i didn't i wasn't sure exactly what that was going to be um he had had um an old uh, guitar made in Kalamazoo, Michigan, back in the office for a long time. He had taken the back of that guitar off so he could re-brace. So the braces go on the underside. They go, they go on the inside of the back of the guitar and they go underneath the top of the guitar. And the braces are such that when there's string tension pulling up on the top of the guitar, the braces keep it from bellying up too much and you know they make it work. The bracing makes the, makes the guitar work. It makes the top vibrate properly and stuff. So he had taken the back off of that guitar Rebraced it, uh, glued the glued the back back on the guitar, and had a guitar that you know that sounded better, sounded different than than, than it did when he started. So we kind of ended up on this idea of these 30s guitars and building a brand that would um, 
when you say 30s, you mean 1930s. 1930s, yes, sorry. Yeah, so Depression era, yeah. Yes, he wanted to emulate kind of guitars that were made and that were certainly more raw, I mean, um, than than what we were doing, you know, in the Collings world. And so so there's a little guitar he had said Kalamazoo up on the headstock. Well, Austin was called Waterloo up until 1839 after you know the republic of texas and, and after the alamo uh, and stephen f austin were the heroes of the texas revolution it became austin was started being called austin but until then at first austin was start out as really a little hunting and fishing camp where shell creek meets the river downtown austin and it was called waterloo <clears throat> and so kalamazoo waterloo it made perfect sense and then the guitars were built on the on the uh, re- referring back to a number of um kind of brands from that era. So we had different styles, you know, Stella's and yeah. things that were made by different companies. And oftentimes they were, uh, the larger companies would build guitars, but they would be, it'd be sold through Montgomery Wards or something like that. So they'd have their own kind of brand on those guitars, depending on you know, who was selling them. And for a fraction of the price, or cheaper price than what the company's main, main line was, uh, which is what it tried to be for us too. And a lot of those guitars, you know, didn't survive. They you couldn't afford a case maybe in 1934, so the guitar would end up, you know, falling apart and mm-hmm. not being taken care of. And so Waterloo was a hugely prop, uh, a successful project, and we were making 25 or 30 a day at some point. But again, after the pandemic, with our staff size, the dealers said, well, if you're making less guitars, please focus on callings. <laughs> um, there's more money obviously involved for a retailer and for us in the callings. So we still make like one Waterloo a week to keep it alive. Um, we don't want to, you know, go offshore with it. We want to keep it, you know, keep it here. And we just, yeah. unfortunately, we can't make very many. And they're hugely um, popular. We get calls every day, people trying to find them. And we will try to help locate one or we just tell them to look at some of the used guitar sites to try to find them. It was a great, they're great guitars. We all own, we all own them. We all love them. They made a big, you know, a big uh, impact on people. Mm. And doing it separate from Collings, it's a different animal. You know, it's a yeah. different guitar than the Collings guitar was. So right. the label inside says Waterloo by Collings, but on the headstock, the logo just says Waterloo. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned the pandemic um, a couple of times, and I know that pre-pandemic, your staff was larger than it is today. You still have a lot of the the loyalists and the it's, you know the really experienced um, guys who who know certain aspects of that production line, but uh, we often talk in story conversations about you know the story of slaying the dragon, and it really feels to me like the pandemic threw you so many curveballs and so many dragons to slay. Uh, talk to us a little bit about, you know, w- what it was like to go through that and to come out the other side and keep going. Well, you know, everyone went through it, as we, as we know. Every industry was not, you know, you know, was affected by this. And I remember March of 2020, I was on the phone with the guys at Martin Guitars and with Taylor Guitars, and we were all doing the exact same thing. We were getting lists together of people that were going to go on furlough. Uh, in Texas, we had the, the Texas Workforce Commission had a program uh, that we could keep all of our employees. Uh, we, we would do this mass claim where they all kind of went on the claim at the same time for us instead of individually filing for unemployment. So we could keep them as employees, keep them on uh, unemployment roles. And then, but, and we we're all doing this exact same time. I was on the phone with Martin that night with Santa, with uh, Taylor Guitars. That night, we were doing the exact same thing at the exact same time because I think Illinois had shut down, New York had shut down. Everybody knew it was coming you know, all, all over the country. We got shut down, I think, the next day for nine weeks or ten weeks. Um, and no one knew if anyone was going to ever order a guitar again. I mean, no one knew what was going to happen, you know, because it was just those first few months was like, you know, the numbers were skyrocketing with, with um, cases of the virus. So... And then in about, so that was in March, and then we slowly, there's some of us that came in every day because we had to check on the acclimation system inside the shop and things like that. Um, and then we would make 
So when we started bringing people back and started building guitars, um, we would call all the dealers and find out which guitars had deposits placed on them. So which ones we knew the dealers would be able to take when we got them completed. So we, we went through, called all the dealers, went through all the orders and, and, and reached out. So we knew which ones to work on because we only had a, you know, a very small crew. We were first starting to come back, bringing in people slowly. And so we were able to do that to keep things going. And then in about September, we noticed orders starting to just increase. Um, and they did, and they, they're still kind of like that. You know, I kept thinking it was going to plateau after a year. It's okay, people are going to, you know, I thought I was going to start playing guitar or get back into it during this, but I'm really not. So, but we didn't see orders getting canceled. We didn't see the demand slow down. It was just kind of was nuts. It's been that way ever since. And, and being about two thirds the size we were before, we, you know, we can't build the same amount of guitars. So hence the allocation system, the allotment system we came up with and uh, you know, where we are today, you know, just kind of trying to grow it back, uh, trying to find people, trying to train people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've made it through, uh, but we're not, you know, back to where we were before. Yeah, you, you, slayed, you slayed the dragon. Well, we, he's, he's, we winged him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that the, the, I wonder how much of that is, uh, yeah, there were obviously people who returned to perhaps a love or took up a new, but it, it feels like owning a Collings guitar isn't really a hobby guitar. It's, it's a, it's a commitment. It's a, it's, it's for a professional or a semi-professional, someone who's like, this is going to be a, it's a relationship. It's an investment. Um, but I wonder if, you know, through that experience of the pandemic, people reappraised the value of things and so actually wanted to own something that had perhaps more meaning than, dare I say, a disposable guitar, a guitar that's manufactured at... It's, uh, and I, I think you're absolutely right, because I was, there was a lot of companies, the larger companies especially, that really ramped up for all this demand that happened, especially with their maybe lesser, their lower end instruments that maybe were being made, you know, overseas or something and ended up, uh, they maybe didn't put the foot on the brake quite soon enough, and there was tons of inventory hanging out, especially with the lower end stuff. That that market seemed to have been hit a little bit more than, than the high end market at, at, after things were kind of getting somewhat back to normal a bit. But, and, and interestingly enough, yes, they, they, they are more expensive than, than some guitars, but we still have people call us that are just kind of starting and learning to play, but they want to play on, they want to learn. I mean, a guitar is just a tool for expressing yourself, right? Yeah. And you want to find the best tool for the job. And, and, and there are people that are, that still are learning that will spend five or $6,000 on a guitar to, to learn because they want to have the right, you know, they want to have the best tool they can get. Fair enough. Good. Well, and we love those guys as much as yeah. we like them. <laughs> we love our customers. We want them to love us. Absolutely. Um, Steve, uh, we could carry on talking um, for ages, I'm sure, but um, we have, in the interest of time, we've got to sort of wrap things up. But we always like to finish our conversations with the same question, which is we ask our guests, do you have a favorite story? Thank you for sharing, you know, some of the stories you have today. But do you have a favorite one? It could be an, an anecdote, a humor story, a story you love just generally. What is it? And can you share it with us? Um. Well, I gave you a couple of the stories earlier, you know, about building yeah. self for, for me personally. And, you know, and one of the, because Bill didn't go out and hear, see music very much or deal with artists until, you know, later on, you know, just a few years before he, before he passed away. But I was always kind of the guy who was out on the streets, traveling to festivals, seeing people. So getting to meet the people I've been able to meet, you know, to sit and talk with Pete Townsend to, to that. Um, but one of the highlights for me was standing out by the highway, watching for Robert Plant, trying to find our driveway. <laughs> and, and he came to the, he came to the job. He had his, he had his hair pulled up, kind of on top of his head. But I saw him drive by, and even though it didn't, he didn't have the, the streaming mane of hair down, I recognized who it was. <laughs> I you know, texted the cell number I had, and he, you know, turned around, pulled in the driveway, and had a lovely visit. And we've become we've been friends since then. You know, he will call me and talk about wildflowers, about Enchanted Rock, which is this geographic geologic formation outside of Austin. He's very a very big student of Americana. 
Mm. Um, so for me, that was kind of a highlight. I love that. Something that's just quite ordinary, but because it's by, it's with somebody like that, it <laughs> takes on yeah. this whole other meaning. Right. Brilliant. Right. Fantastic. Well, I made some great friends doing this. Um, yeah. So that's been, for me personally, that's been, you know, a lot of highlights like that, but that was a special one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, look, thank you so much. This has been a privilege and a, a, a pleasure. And we know that our listeners are, are going to love this episode. Mm. Um, the, it, it's sad that we can't do two things. First of all, show visually the website, because the details on the guitars are so visually beautiful. And, you know, I keep wanting to figure out if we could get, figure out a way to have people hear that voice of a Collings guitar, but we'll, we'll, we'll have to get them to, uh, go to YouTube, go to YouTube. There you go. Go to the website, go to YouTube. Great. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Thanks. Steve. Well, thanks again for, for including us. It's a, it's a special place uh, created by a special guy, and the people are here. You're keeping it going. Well, that's fun. <laughs> yeah, another great guest. So let's let's unpack a couple of points yeah. for our listeners. I think the the first thing, and it's, it's something that we've talked about outside of the podcast, you know, about origin stories and. You know, they might not always be colourful, but maybe there are colourful elements. They might be might not be the Steve Jobs origin story, or indeed the Bill Collings origin story. But if you have something that you can hold on to that's colourful about how or why you started a company, maybe it was you know to shake up an industry or just do something different. I think that's there's a clear sign to use it. You know, if that origin story will help create curiosity and draw people in. You know, it goes back to some of this stuff about people are really interested in why a business yes. is founded and why a brand um, yeah. was formed in the first place. It's a powerful part of a brand narrative. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, Colling's Guitars certainly has <laughs> the colorful origin stories in spades. Um, yeah. So... The, the other thing for me was the notion that, um, you know, we talk about the, the brand narrative element that highlights quality. And I go back to, you know, long ago and far away, the Edward Deming's um, total quality management uh, ethos that said mm. quality is adhering to the customer's requirements. You mm. know, we've never really talked about that on the podcast, but... In the case of Collings, that quality mantra was about, you know, the attention to detail, to the metaphorical inside that users and customers might not even see, mm. right? And, and, you know, it's about the but quality was knowing what a customer would expect even before they expected. Yeah whether it was, as he called it, the voicing of the instrument or imbuing the instrument with that almost animate quality, which could only happen if there was intense attention to detail. But it was detail that would be meaningful to that customer segment. Yeah, so, absolutely. you know, when he talked about... Um, understanding the world of rock, jazz, country, bluegrass, mm. folk, and what the performers who use these instruments are trying to express in their artistry that they can only do if the instrument they're playing is contributing that element that their audiences will recognize right yeah. so it's that you know so many of our clients talk about quality you know we, we provide a quality product but they don't tie it back to that meaning of quality you yeah know, which is creating something where even even if the client doesn't realize that you've invested in 
the thing inside, it transcends to something that will be the element that they value. So it's understanding the customer segment and then being relentless about providing that. What, what defines quality for your client base? Yeah. And what's Um, what's unique for them? And specific. (laughs) Well, speaking of specific and specificity, (laughs) see, look, look, Two seasons in, and I can finally say specificity. That's just good stuff. Um, the details. It comes back to the details, and we had it this time with Steve. He said, you know, details matter. But I think it's more than that. It's more than just the details and the simple facts about what makes you different, what makes your products and that quality different from your competitors. That's, that's good. That's important. But those are just um, data points. They're just, they're just right. moments. Right. You're, your customers have got to kind of understand that and and they're everywhere so i, I think they, it, they have I, to have the, the details have to tell a story they have to connect in some way yes so yes. so you have to kind of roll them up into well what does this mean what, why is that what, why is that important to me what's the value that that places for both me as the consumer but also you as the brand you know, what's what what is that that brand value so it's succinct um you know, hopefully impress, expressed in a way that customers can connect to and see. You know, that's the storytelling part. Are you are you really connecting the stories and the narrative through good storytelling? So again, it does come back to details, but in a very specific way this time. Yeah, in an in a in a narrative uh, narrative way. And you know, we we were we were joking about. Uh, you hope that those details roll up into something that you're customers actually say because mm. it's you know we if pete townsend <laughs> or lyle lovett says yeah. this is this is a fine guitar and you ought to have one that's going to be more powerful than any brand saying we have a fine product and you ought to buy it <laughs> There are testimonials, and then there are testimonials. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, another another great conversation. Um, so this has been another great season of it Story Conversations. Been. Looking forward to season three uh, and the wonderful guests that we'll have on that. Um, it's been fantastic as always uh, and you know I feel like we're just hearing so many patterns and so many things repeated from our guests it's fascinating that our clients perhaps sometimes still don't get those messages but that's why we're here right exactly exactly <laughs> and you know towards that end um, uh, Griffin and Skakes Collaborative and Iambic Creative are always here if you have challenges in forming and 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 discovering and distilling your unique brand narrative, mm. um, framing the the stories and the the ways in which to communicate that differentiated value proposition to your specific customer base, um, we would love to help you do that. Yeah, so indeed. check us out in the show notes and. Yeah, reach out to us and you know the back catalog will be great listening for your summer pleasure lots to learn we'll see you next season Mm -hmm.